You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Today, in our ninth course in Norms of Catholic Faith and Doctrine, we're going to be talking about the issue of infallibility. But before we do, we need to talk a little bit more about the, the different levels of, of papal and episcopal teaching. In the last class, we spoke about the fact that there's universal magisterium as well as lo, uh, local magisterium. And that the Bishop of Rome, because of his unique role as universal teacher, successor of Peter, uh, he has, the, every time he speaks, really, we're talking about, well, anytime he speaks in, in any official capacity, in his teaching, teaching doctrine, he is exercising universal magisterium. There's an ordinary universal magisterium that goes on every day. And let's talk about the, the Pope and his everyday teaching. And, we'll talk, and, and then we'll talk about the extraordinary, we'll talk about the Episcopal uh, or universal magisterium, and then we'll talk about extraordinary magisterium. First of all, the, the papal ordinary universal magisterium is usually expressed in documents. Anytime the Pope speaks, somebody writes it down. Sometimes he actually intends to send a written document and written teaching to the world. Other times he does talks that are written down. So let's talk about the different levels. I'm going to explain something to you right now. If this seems a little confusing and you haven't seen it before, it's because there's no place in the catechism where this is laid out the way I'm going to lay it out for you. It's something that theologians and canon lawyers kind of know, um, and it, it's one of those things where, you know, it's not, it, it's not exact, but I'm going to try to make it as clear as I can for you so that you can understand different kinds of papal documents and different kinds of level of authority. We'll start at the top. We'll stop, start with the most solemn form of a papal uh, teaching, and that is called an apostolic constitution. When the Pope wants to teach something important, it doesn't necessarily have to be infallible doctrine he's trying to define or anything, but any time that there's an important teaching that he wants the universal church to sit up and take notice of, he would very frequently, he'll choose the, the, this highest level or, or most solemn form of, of a document called an apostolic constitution. For example, the Catechism of the Catholic Church that came out several years ago was an extraordinary event. There was no universal catechism since the Council of Trent, and so it was a very important thing. And the Pope, when he promulgated that catechism, when he published it, he published it preceded by an apostolic constitution. When the new code of canon law after Vatican II was finished, it was promulgated by an apostolic constitution. When back in the 1950s, Pope Pius XII wanted to define a dogma, the dogma of the Assumption of Mary, he did it in an apostolic constitution. And he dressed it up in terms of its appearance and delivery. And, that, and the way it was dressed up was called a, a papal bull. You may have heard of a papal bull. Papal bull is not a kind of document. It's just a, a way in which a decree is dressed up with a seal and a ribbon and things like that. So the Apostolic Constitution is the most solemn form of document. And it's used for a number of different things, but, um, including but not limited to a solemn definition of a dogma. The next level of, 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 of importance in a document would be an encyclical. Encyclical means a circular letter, a letter that is written and passed around. 
That's in the old days when people had to hand copy letters, back in the days like of St. Paul. St. Paul wrote uh, letters to specific churches, and the, the church that received it thought it was so important that it copied it, and local other churches, seemed. it seems that what they said was, hey, we want a copy of that letter so we can read it at our Sunday gatherings. So letter made its way around. You know, all Paul's letters made their way around the Christian world and ultimately were collected together and ultimately made their way into New Testament. So they were encyclicals, but not by intent necessarily. But later on, bishops and, and popes wrote letters that they intended to be passed around, and those letters intended for everyone to be passed around were called encyclicals. Now, the popes have been teaching with encyclicals for many, many years, but especially since the 19th century there's been an increase in encyclicals and this way of teaching God's people. And many of the encyclicals, one of the most famous ones and most controversial ones, was an encyclical written by Paul VI called Humanae Vitae, talking about the sacredness of human life. And in that document, he of course talks about the horror of abortion, and he talks about artificial birth control and the use of artificial birth control not being compatible with Catholic ethics, and that's the most controversial part of that encyclical. So there are many encyclicals that have been written. John Paul II has written many magnificent encyclical letters. Um, and so it's a normal, ordinary way of teaching doctrine that the Pope employs. The next level down would be, let's say, confessions of faith. Sometimes a Pope personally will write a, a confession of faith or a creed, a summary of Catholic teaching. After the Second Vatican Council, Paul VI did that. He wrote something called the Credo of the People of God, and you can find it in the Christian Faith, number 39. That confession of faith was written by the Pope. It's not new. He's not defining new dogmas. He's simply emphasizing what he believes needs to be emphasized, particularly as he went through the Creed, which was in many, many of the statements of the Nicene Creed that we, we um, recite every Sunday were in there. But he, he ends up adding a good deal on the Eucharist because he felt like many people were losing sense of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So that was an important thing that he put there. And as pastor of the church, he was recognizing the need to emphasize a, tradition, a traditional teaching, of course, a dogma that was being somewhat neglected. So a confession of faith would be a very important kind of document that a pope would write. Not all popes have done that, like Pope, pope Paul VI. But all popes use another form that's a little bit less solemn, uh, a, a form of communication, a little less solemn than an encyclical or, or a, a confession of faith, and that's called an apostolic letter, or sometimes it's called an apos apostolic exhortation. John Paul II has written many apostolic exhortations because uh, we have a, a mechanism of universal uh, consultation of bishops called the Synod of Bishops. Every three years, bishops from around the world, representatives from various bishops' conferences from around the world will come to Rome, and they will consult and deliberate, and they'll pray, and they'll, they'll examine a topic that is very important for current Catholic life. And it's become customary at the end of that conference of bishops, it's a small group of bishops, uh, maybe a, a few hundred from around the world, when they come together and they finish their, their teaching, their deliberation, their discussions, it's customary for John Paul II um, and, and the popes that succeed him will do the same. They, do a, they, they collect that teaching and express it in the form of an apostolic exhortation. Okay, so th that's uh, one of the most famous ones is on the family, familiaris consortio. Another wonderful one is on the sacrament of penance. Um, 
it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful document. So those documents are there. They're very nourishing and inspiring for the faithful, very helpful. And then you have an executive order. The presidents write executive orders, commands for things to happen. The Pope will write executive orders. When they're very, very, very important, they can be called an apostolic constitution. The more ordinary ones would, would be called a motu proprio. Then there's the talks that the Pope gives regularly. Every time pilgrims come to Rome, uh, the Pope gives talks. He gives talks out in you know, the audiences that happen every week. There are special groups of people that will come, so these special audiences, let's say you know, a group of lawyers, Catholic lawyers from around the world, and the Pope will give a talk about the responsibility of lawyers, maybe a challenge in a particular legal issue in the, in the world. Um, there was a, a famous allocution or talk given to the Italian midwives by Pius XII, and in that talk, he said some very important things about the, the sanctity of life. Um, he has spoken many times, all the popes have spoken many times to particular groups, and sometimes the, their teaching to those groups be very significant. They, the teaching, in, in all these kinds of documents, the pope's everyday teaching can oftentimes really reflect a growth and understanding. So it, it can advance the development of doctrine. So all these levels of teaching are, are something to pay attention to. Then the Pope has a cabinet, just like the President of the United States has a cabinet. And the cabinet for the Pope is called the Curia. And there are different departments of the Curia of the Catholic Church in Rome. And there's the, the, the um, um, Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. And they deal with issues relative to doctrine. You also have various congregations having to do with liturgy, sacraments, Life, the life and the, the, the role of priests. There's various kinds of congregations. And they issue statements, particularly the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, will issue teachings and statements. And those teachings are, by extension, they fall under the papal magisterium. They're not just a group of individual bishops. You know, they're not just a commi some committee of the church somewhere in the world. They happen to be the pope's cabinet. And so when they speak, the pope signs their work. And so their teaching is an extension of his teaching. It's part of the universal papal magisterium. Of course, it's not quite as forceful as if he would say it himself. There are sometimes he signs in a special way that emphasizes how important a particular curial document can be. But the, the, the point here is you have to understand when you look at magisterial teaching, what form is it given in? Because the form that it's given in gives you an idea of the importance that is attached to it, how strongly it's being asserted. Uh, how universally rel relevant it is. It's part of the, 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 the art of interpreting documents, which we'll talk about in the next class. Okay? So those are the different kinds of papal documents on a daily basis, the way the Pope teaches. But on a daily basis, the bishops teach also. And we need to talk about how the bishops teach, not just as individuals, but as a college on a daily basis. Is that possible? Do they do that? And the answer is yes. There is a universal magisterium that's ordinary that the bishops can conduct. And one of the ways is that the bishops, uh, as they're going about their daily task, are oftentimes teaching exactly what other bishops are teaching around the world. And sometimes they're teaching that very forcefully, and they're teaching it and implying or saying very clearly that what they're teaching is revealed by God. When all the bishops around the world you know, are teaching in a, a doctrine, on a daily basis, that's not just individual local teaching. That's seen to be universal exercise of the, of the magisterium, the Episcopal magisterium. And in some cases, if they propose universally that something is in fact revealed by God and must be accepted by God's people, 
if they teach that that way, and they, it may be implicit, and it may be you know just a, a, implicit and assumed, but if that's the way it's being, uh, doctrine is being taught by all the bishops of the world, then we see that doctrine as being dogma, and we see it as being infallible, even though there's no official group statement that says that. Is there an example of something, uh, a couple of doctrines that have never officially been defined by the bishops in an ecumenical council or by the pope, but are dogma and, and are therefore considered part of the deposit of the faith? I would say yes. The, the church has never, the bishops have never had to have a conference or a council to define that God exists. And neither has the pope ever had to do an infallible statement that God exists. It's part of the ordinary, universal, Episcopal magisterium teaching, of course, that God exists. And also, that's really pretty obvious. Let's look at one that's maybe a little bit less obvious. How about the existence of angels and the existence of the demonic, you know, of bad angels that are our foes? Is that something that is just an opinion? In the last hundred years, uh, maybe the last 200 years, because of the enlightenment, the scientific mentality that has arisen that suspects um, the supernatural and tries to minimize the reality of the supernatural and tries to explain everything in terms of natural causality. Because of that, uh, there's been a tremendous resistance on the part of many to, to accept anything supernatural, to explain away miracles, explain away um, all things like the demonic, just in terms of natural causality. Like, for example, you know, demonic possession is just always just psychological. Someone is mentally ill. Certainly, there, we understand a lot more about mental illness in the last 200 years. And I'm not saying that all mentally ill people are possessed. But the, what I am saying is that there's, there's this tendency that's been around for the last 200 years. So there are some theologians who've, and priests and others who have gotten up and said that there's no angels and no demons, that angels and demons are simply uh, you know, something that is a reflective of an ancient worldview of the New Testament, you know, of a superstitious worldview. And now we know better. Okay. I've heard that by, very often. And I will say this, that the existence of angels and demons is something that has been continually taught by the bishops of the Catholic Church and in the creeds. And so to me, it, although it's never been specifically defined that Catholics have to believe in the existence of angels and demons or they'll be expelled from the church, you know, that's never been defined because it's never had to be. But it's been taught and it's been assumed and it's been taught everywhere. Um, in the creed, when we say, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and all things visible and invisible. The invisible, historically, in its original context, refers to angels and demons. So we've taught this. All, the bishops have taught it forever, everywhere. And so that would be an example of, of infallible teaching of the ordinary, universal, Episcopal magisterium, in my view. Now that's, again, my view. I think I can defend it. But because it's not officially defined, of course, it's open to a certain amount of debate. That's why we have official definitions. That's why there are uh, instances where something is defined, because when it's defined, no one really, it's not, there's no more question of interpretation of whether it's obligatory or not. It's clear, it's definitive, it's official. So there is a, f a teaching that can be infallible, um, taught by the bishops in, an, in an, maybe in a less than formal way throughout the world. Okay. There's also other ordinary teaching universally of the bishops that is expressed, and, and it's not necessarily infallible teaching, but let, let's just talk about ways in which the, the bishops universally can express in a common way their teaching. One is when they come together in a synod of Rome every three years. Uh, their teaching there is, uh, their discussions 
really impact the whole church. That's why they're gathered together. They're talking about matters relative to, to the whole church. And so their teaching, which often is actually expressed by the Pope in an apostolic exhortation, that to me would be an expression of a universal, ordinary Episcopal magisterium. But let's look at another instance of it, in my view. Again, this, this is not something that, that maybe everybody would, would say, but I think uh, it's, I can make a pretty strong case for it. The Catechism of the Catholic Church that came out several years ago was the fruit of much consultation of bishops throughout the world. The Vatican sent uh, letters to bishops everywhere asking for input on what needed to be taught in a universal catechism. And they received input from bishops from around the world. They sent out a, a draft, received input and criticism and, uh, from around the world again. And there was a committee of several bishops who actually wrote the catechism. But they were writing based on the, the teaching of the bishops and the concerns and the input of the bishops throughout the world. So in my view, the, the universal catechism of the Catholic Church is an extraordinary document, and it reflects the universal, ordinary Episcopal magisterium of the Church. Okay, so there's the, the, the ordinary universal magisterium. Let's talk about the extraordinary universal magisterium. When, when, when we talk about extraordinary, we're talking about events that typically are occasioned, most of the time, by crisis and challenge. And definitions that make it absolutely clear the lines, where the lines are drawn, and what a Catholic has to believe in order to be a Catholic in good conscience and full communion with the Church. Those kinds of events are fairly rare. Uh, and there's the, 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 the times, most of the time when there's been a crisis in doctrine, a crisis in faith in the history of the Church, the, the Church's response to that would be to call an ecumenical council the first ecumenical council, sometimes people would say the first ecumenical council was the Council of Jerusalem. And the Council of Jerusalem took place, we read about it in Acts, and it's because of the Gentile crisis. The big question was, should Gentile Christians have to become Jews? Do they need to be circumcised and keep the Jewish law to be Christians? And obviously there's great controversy. You had Paul who was preaching no, you had James and, the, and some of the people in Jerusalem saying yes. So what happens? They all come to Jerusalem, they have a con conference, and the conference speaks. And when the conference speaks, it said, is, it, here's what, what the conference says in, in Acts, it is a decision of us and the Holy Spirit that, and then goes on to explain how the Gentiles should not be burdened with the need to become Jews, but they do have to keep a few, a few certain moral precepts and a few certain things they need to follow. Okay. Now, that was, that's a good example of, of where the idea of an ecumenical council comes from. It comes from Scripture. It comes from Acts. Okay? And the next time we have an ecumenical council, which we would say would be the first really official ecumenical council after the New Testament period, would be when there was a debate whether Jesus was fully God, whether he was fully equal to the Father. That was a debate that rent the, the, the Christian world in the early part of the 4th century. So at that time, the Christian emperor called a council. Now that's a fascinating thing about an ecumenical council. Uh, they're not always called by popes. Today they are, but when there were Christian emperors in the, in the ancient world, it oftentimes was called by the emperor. As the, the temporal protector of the Christian uh, empire, you know, he would see a crisis and call a council. Now he never presided over the council. He didn't make, uh, you know, run the council, but he would call it. And throughout the, the, the history of the church, there have been ecumenical councils, extraordinary events. They cost a lot of money. They cause a lot of hassle. 
uh, though a lot, a lot of trouble. So they are extraordinary. The church doesn't do them very often. Uh, I'm reminded of John the 23rd when he announced that a new ecumenical council was going to take place in Rome. He announced that in, I believe it was 1958, or I think it was New Year's 1959. He announced it to the cardinals in Rome, and he was met with a stony silence. And the silence is because, you know, an ecumenical council causes tremendous amount of turmoil uh, and really rocks the boat a great deal. So you don't do it unless the Holy Spirit, as, as the Holy Spirit led John the 23rd to call a council, you know, you don't do it unless there's a great need and the Holy Spirit inspires it. So an ecumenical council. Why do we call it ecumenical? What's the word ecumenical really mean? We use it today to talk about relationship between different Christian churches that are not in full communion with each other. Well, ecumenical means um, the whole house. It comes from the word house, oikia in Greek, or it means household or family. In this, originally it referred to the Christian empire, the whole household of, of the Christian empire in the Mediterranean, the Roman Empire. And so an ecumenical council was getting the whole household together to discuss a matter that impacted everybody. So it's a universal event. There are in the early church tons of local councils, local councils in North Africa, in France, and today we have bishops' conferences, which really are like local councils all over the world that are happening several times a year in each location. But an ecumenical council is universal. It's the whole church represented. Does every bishop come from around the world? No, not every bishop can. But every bishop has the right to attend an ecumenical council. And uh, if he can't come often, we'll send a representative. So uh, that's, that's kind of what, what an ecumenical council is and should be. And uh, it's not always attended by tons and tons of people. The first ecumenical council, uh, you know, if you remember the ancient world, travel is not as easy as it is today. Even today, travel is very challenging, especially when a council lasts a long time. And some councils have lasted a long time. The Council of Trent lasted for decades. Uh, the, Council, the Second Vatican Council, when Paul uh, John the Twenty-Third called it, he was thinking it was going to be very short. And um, in fact, he was just renting the equipment to, for the bishops to sit on in the, in the Vatican. And it was, you know, really, uh, he, it was encouraged to him by his secretary that he ought to buy the stuff and be cheaper than renting it. And the Pope, Pope John the Twenty-Third, said, "No, we'll just be here for, you know, a few months." And after the first session, he realized that it was going to be a lot longer than that, so he bought the equipment, and the council lasted four years. Now, bishops weren't away from their flock for four years, but they were there several months out of the year for four years, and that's a very challenging thing to pull off. So there are some times when, you know, over the course of history, ecumenical councils really in attendance have been rather small, okay? So anyway, the, what, what really makes an ecumenical council is not that every bishop is there, but it's that it's a matter that concerns the whole church, and it at least has to be confirmed by the Pope. That's an important point. In Catholic, Roman Catholic theory of ecumenical councils, we see that a universal council that bears on everybody and has import for everybody, and is a council that's confirmed by the Pope, even if he didn't call it, even if he, he never it traditionally presides at it. Uh, it's just a tradition that he never attends the council himself. Uh, he may address it, but it is always uh, something that he has to approve to be ecumenical. Okay, I have to point out a very important difference between the way in which Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholics look at this issue of an ecumenical council. There's a theory that you need to know that the Eastern Orthodox Church has, and it's called the theory of the Pentarchy. In the ancient church, certain and very important bishops came to be called patriarchs. 
And in the ancient church in the first, um, in the fourth century, fifth century, there were five uh, patriarchies, five patriarchates. There was Rome, there was Antioch, Alexandria, uh, Jerusalem, and Constantinople. Those five bishops were called patriarchs. And in the, 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 the view of the Eastern Orthodox, an ecumenical council can't be ecumenical unless those five patriarchs are represented and collaborate in that council and, and adhere to that council. So for them, they, they, that, any council after the schism, after the, the year uh, 1054, any council after that, in their view, can't be ecumenical. They can't have an ecumenical council because they don't have, uh, because the Pope of Rome, the Patriarch of Rome is not there. And we can't have a truly ecumenical council because the successors of those patriarchs who were in schism in the 11th century, they are not present. Now, our, the Catholic Church doesn't see things quite that way. And in fact, the Catholic Church has patriarchs from those areas that are Catholic patriarchs that are there. But the theory of the Pentarchy is a uniquely Eastern Orthodox theory. The Catholic theory is that it is the confirmation of the Pope of Rome that makes a, 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 um, a, a council ecumenical. So by, you know, there, there's no absolute infallible listing of which councils are ecumenical, but, but, but there are, in the Catholic world, a certain agreement on which councils are and which councils are not. So that is a little bit about ecumenical councils. Now, the important point is, when an ecumenical council happens, not all of its teaching is infallible, binding, dogmatic teaching. In fact, a lot of the teaching of an ecumenical council can be disciplinary. It can be on matters of fasting law, liturgical law, and various kinds of things. And its teaching can often be general pastoral teaching and not dogmatic, binding teaching. The Second Vatican Council made a decision, and that decision was that there would be no infallible statements, dogmatic statements, defined by that council. It was a pastoral council that was meant to re-articulate the tradition in a way that helped move ahead the development of doctrine and helped make doctrine much more understandable to people in the 20th century and clarify many misconceptions about Catholic faith. Very important council, documents very, very important, but not containing infallible definitions. But some councils have made very important infallible definitions of faith. And those definitions, those dogmatic definitions, put an end to free discussion. They are definitive statements. They draw clear boundaries. And oftentimes, if people do not adhere to them, almost always, they are anathematized. What does that mean? They are declared to be outside full Catholic communion. The anathema was something that Paul used. Okay, the word comes from, it comes from St. Paul. And when he talked about the, those who have... Um, you know, the, the demanded that Christians, all Christian Gentiles be circumcised, he said, let them be anathema. Uh, that is accursed to, to hold that position because it, it destroys the idea of salvation by grace through faith. It destroys the newness of Christianity. So Paul was the guy who came up with the word. It's a it's scriptural word, and it's been used to make clear that those who hold certain opinions are outside of full communion with the Catholic Church. And usually, a doctrine is defined, and then the opposite opinion is anathematized. It is said to be accursed, and those who hold it are said to be outside of visible communion. In the next class, we're going to read
some dogmatic definitions. But just what you have to know now is most of the time in the history of the church, the dogmatic definitions have been made by ecumenical councils and always have therefore been approved by a pope. But a, very few have been made by popes alone without an ecumenical council. Well, that's what we talk, when we talk about papal infallibility, that's what we're talking about. And that's what we'll talk about in the next class. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.